All right, tonight we're going to be in James chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 12. So as you're turning there, let me just say a little bit about the book of James. It was written by James. I mean, I know that's an earth-shattering sort of thing to say, but, but there's actually a lot of Jameses actually in the New Testament. So it's actually believed that it's the brother of Jesus who wrote it, the oldest, probably the oldest brother, since usually when he is mentioned in the Gospels, he's listed first. Uh, Jude was probably James's younger brother, uh, another uh, of Jesus' brothers that wrote an epistle. James, as his other brothers, all of his brothers, they were not believers before Christ's death and resurrection, right? We see that in the New Testament. James uh, saw Christ after the resurrection and became a believer. He seems to be the leader of the Jerusalem Council. You see that in Acts, and then tradition holds that he was stoned in A.D. 62. So this is, this is James. So the book of James was probably written before the Jerusalem Council. <clears throat> we say that because there is little distinction made between Judaism and Christianity. Uh, so it appears to be very early. There's no Christian distinctives appear other than the lordship of Christ and the hope of his early return. There's no warning about Judaizers, no mention of the Jerusalem Council, uh, no mention of Gentile believers. And even in, in James 2.2, he uses uh, the word assembly, which is also the word synagogue. Um, and so all of these things sort of points to very early early writing for the book of James where there wasn't a great distinction between the Jewish believers uh, or the Jewish people in general and, and the church. Uh, James is one of the general epistles along with First uh, and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and Jude. And notice that all of these ones, the, the title of the, the book is the author's name. We don't have the book of Paul because Paul is usually writing to churches or to an individual like Timothy, right? So these ones are, <clears throat> have the author's name on them. James has allusions to 21 Old Testament books, so he's very familiar with the Old Testament. And, and also there's a lot of similarities between what James says in the teachings of Jesus, particularly on the Sermon on the Mount. So James is very familiar with Jesus' um, teaching. So even though his brothers weren't a believers, they apparently followed Jesus around, maybe just to see what their troublemaking brother was doing, but it soaked in. And so he's, he sounds a lot like Jesus giving these parables and giving these, uh, these things on the Sermon on the Mount. James is written in a very authoritative tone. There's 54 imperatives in 108 verses. So basically every other verse, he has a command to you. Um, and he probably has more figures of speech, analogies, and imagery from nature than all of Paul's epistles combined. So Paul is probably more like me, dry, academic, uh, just to the point where James is more flowery, uses these analogies and all that. And we're going to see one of those today. So the, in general, the themes of James is, James wants his readers to understand that the Christian faith is more than a mere profession, right? A saving faith is a living and active faith. It proves that it is alive by what it does. And the reality of a living faith is demonstrated by its reaction under adversity. And we're going to see that in our passage today. So James 1, 2 through 12. <clears throat> Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. <clears throat> and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a follower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. 
so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So tonight we'll have four points, uh, basically. So we have James insists that his believers must have the proper attitude towards trials. This is in the first uh, verses 2 through 4. Then he urges them to resort to prayer for wisdom amidst trials, uh, verses 5 through 8. He reminds those being tried that they must have a correct estimate of life, verses 9 through 11. And then finally in verse 12, he states the result of enduring trials. Excuse me, I've got to get some water. <clears throat> all right, so point one, the proper attitude toward trials. James, uh, this is verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Unless steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the natural human response is to think that trials must be deserved in some way, right? You think back to Job's friends, and they're accusing Job. Job, you must have done something wrong. These bad things would not have happened to you unless something bad happened. Think back of the disciples when they asked Jesus in John 9-2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Right, something bad happened. It must be because of something you did, right? This must be, uh, you must have done something wrong. But James tells us that God brings trials into our life for our benefit. This is a completely different, different way of looking at things. So we have three sub-points under this point. Sorry, we're going to have lots of points. So sub-point A, the proper attitude to have amidst a trial is joy. Uh, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice, James does not say, Count it all joy when the trial is finally over. Right? He says, Count it all joy when you meet trials. The joyous attitude called for by James is vastly superior to the, our natural human reaction of complaining and brooding and self-pity or the adoption of an attitude attitude of stoic resignation and grim fortitude. Uh, you know, James does not command his readers to enjoy their trials, right? We're supposed to rejoice, have joy. That doesn't mean we have to enjoy them. Calvin says, it is indeed certain that all the senses of our nature are so formed that every trial produces in us grief and sorrow, and no one of us can so far divest himself of his nature as not to grieve and be sorrowful whenever he feels any evil. But this does not prevent the children of God to rise by the guidance of the Spirit above the sorrow of the flesh. Hence it is that in the midst of trouble, they cease not to rejoice. Right? That's the attitude that we should have. We are to adapt an attitude of joy as a result of a deliberate evaluation. One commentator says, To have joy does not necessarily mean we will be hilarious and laughing about the trials we are experiencing, but it means we will have a deep-seated confidence that God knows what he is doing and that the results will be for his glory and our good. Right? The use of my brothers shows that this command is for Christians. Right? This is not an attitude that non-Christians can have because they have no hope that these difficulties and trials in life are going to result for their good. It's only because of God that we can have that hope and God's promises that he will never leave us, he'll never forsake us, that we can have these promises. If you don't believe in God, a trial is just going to be suffering. There can be no joy in the trial because there's nobody in control. But we as Christians, we know God is in control. He, God is sovereign. So we can rejoice because we know that God is a good God and he means good for us. The word translated as meet is used in two other places in the New Testament. It's translated as fell among in Luke 10.30 in the story of the Good Samaritan where the man fell among thieves. It's translated as striking in Acts 27.41, where the ship unexpectedly ran into a sandbar. The point is that trials can happen at any time and that they are unavoidable and unexpected, right? We shouldn't go looking for trials. Just because we're supposed to count it all joy doesn't mean, how can I find a trial? How can I, 
how can I get into these things? Nor do we need to try to not escape from them. We're allowed to use all the means that are good to escape a trial. We shouldn't use sinful means to escape the trial, but we're allowed to use good means to escape a trial. So we're not supposed to like look for trouble. But when, trial, when trouble comes, when trials comes, we can rejoice in that. <clears throat> and notice that James says when, not if. It's not a question of you may or may not suffer or have trials in your life. No, you will have trials in your life. It will come. They will come. Uh, we are going to encounter them. All right, so point two, the reason for the commanded attitude. Verse three says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The word translated no suggests a knowledge grounded in personal experience. So James is not claiming to find, have found something new here. He's not saying this is something I've discovered and I'm sharing it with you. We all should know this. The readers have already been through trials, and they should know that trials build steadfastness. He's reminding them of that. We can see that James held faith to be the central importance in the Christian life. Its testing has an impact upon the very core of our spiritual being. The word translated as steadfastness is literally to stay under or to remain under. So it has the idea of endurance. It's the frame of mind that bravely endures trials and pressures encountered. The production of steadfastness should be seen as a continuing process. It's just not a one-time thing. So this steadfastness is not a passive attitude of quiet submission or resignation, but rather a bravery that confronts the difficulties and contends against them. It's that it is the tenacity of spirit which holds up under pressure while awaiting God's time for dismissal of the test or for his reward. You can think of David and when Saul was hunting him down, David waited all those years for God to act because there was no lawful way for him to become king except for Saul to die. And it was not lawful for him to kill Saul. So he had to wait for God's timing. And, he, and David bravely stood up for that. Not that it wasn't easy, but that is the attitude that we should have when we face these trials. <clears throat> complete means something like that which retains all that was allotted to it. So it was used for things that were complete and intact, such as animals that were sound in processing all their parts and thus acceptable for sacrifice in the altar. It's used here in an ethical sense to include all those virtues that should characterize the mature believer. It suggests a rounding out as more and more parts of the righteous character is added to us. Maturity of character is not the result uh, of the number of trials encountered, but the way in which those trials are met, allowing them to achieve their divinely intended impact on us. All right, so let's go to point two. Uh, the use of prayer amidst trials. So verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James knew that to look at the trials of life with all joy requires wisdom, and that we all need wisdom. Um, so the... I have multiple subpoints under this one as well. First subpoint, the need for wisdom. In the first part of verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. So James assumes that people facing trials do lack wisdom. We all need wisdom. We need wisdom to see our trials in their true light and to profit spiritually from them. We need biblical wisdom. Wisdom is more than knowing a lot and having a quick answer. It's the moral discernment that enables a believer to meet life and its trials with decisions and actions consistent with God's will. To live a life of righteousness and to avoid the paths of wickedness. Right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as it says in Proverbs 9.10. And then we see in the, sub-point, the second subpoint, the request for wisdom. This is the last half of verse 5. Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. 
So James now directs the reader to the true source of wisdom, that is God. Uh, this is another command, right? This is the command. The verb ask shows that wisdom is something that must be given to us. It's not something that we can gain on our own. It's also only acquired through prayer. This is characteristically a Christian idea. Uh, the Jews thought that wisdom was gained through the study of the Torah. And, it, and it's true that the divine wisdom is embodied in the scriptures. But it's also true that many have studied the scriptures without receiving wisdom. So certainly we get wisdom from studying the scriptures, but it also requires meditation and prayer on that. And, and obviously God's spirit. Um, otherwise we will not have that wisdom. There's many people that know the Bible very well, but don't actually attain wisdom. Asking for wisdom was a foreign concept to the pagans. Uh, one person writes, in one of Cicero's moral books, in speaking of the things which we could properly ask of the gods, he enumerates such things as wealth, honor, or health of body. But then he adds, it would be absurd to ask wisdom of any god, for it would be totally out of his power to give such a thing to his worshipers. Right? So this is kind of a Christian idea that we can ask wisdom from God. Uh, no restraint is placed on what God gives. He gives more than just wisdom. Uh, in James 1.17, we see that every good gift and every perfect gift is from God. It's from above. No restraint is placed on who God gives to. God does not just give to a favored few or to those who somehow deserve it. I mean, no one deserves anything from God. <clears throat> the word translated generously means simple or single. So the idea is God gives with a single motive to further the welfare of the asker. He has no ulterior motives when he gives, right? He doesn't give you something so that you can, he can get something back because he doesn't need anything from us, right? So he has no motives to do that. It's not a self, there's no selfish motives in there. He does not give based on what he can get in return. God gives to all wholeheartedly with a singleness of purpose and with the wealth of liberality. And then finally, God gives without reproach. He does not remind us of how poorly we have used his past gifts. That would be horrible if he did. Like, you want wisdom, but I gave you wisdom last week and you didn't really do a good job with it. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't rebuke us for asking for more. He does not give in a way that would humiliate us. He does not scold us for our lack of wisdom. He gives generously and liberally without reproach. The third sub-point here, the bestowal of wisdom. This is, uh, well, very, very end of verse 5 through 8. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose they to receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God will respond favorably when we turn to him in our need. The positive assurance, and it will be given to him, encourages prayer for wisdom. God will give it to us. Uh, the necessary attitude is one of faith. Right? He says, but let him ask in faith. Our prayers must be offered in, in faith. There can be no acceptable prayer without faith. Jesus says in Matthew 21, 22, And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Faith is the very essence of spiritual life. Hebrews eleven six says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, that is God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is a wholehearted attitude of a full and unquestioning committal to and dependence upon God as he has revealed himself to us in Christ Jesus. Faith is the proper response to the goodness of God. Uh, one commentator says, when we approach God with our petitions, we must believe not only in his ability to grant our requests, but also in his ability to answer in harmony with his character and purpose. Believing prayer takes a stand upon the character of God. And I would add, not only do we must believe that he is able to grant our request, but that he is willing to do it for us. I think that's where I lack a lot of times is, yeah, I know God can do it, but I, I don't really believe he will do it for me, right? But, but he will. We have to have that faith. So 
<clears throat> the wrong attitude is one of doubting. And this is what we see with this imagery here. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose they receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So here James uses nature to paint a vivid picture of the state of the doubter. Uh, this is the first of a number of similes used by, by James. I printed double-sided. Usually I don't do that, and it's messing me up here tonight. So I'm going to skip, probably going to skip half my sermon because I'm not going to flip it over. The doubter is like the turbulent sea, wind-driven and storm-tossed. I, I remember one time uh, when I was in the Navy, in the submarine, I mean, normally, submerged, everything is rock-silent. You don't feel anything. But there was one time we were under a hurricane, and the waves were wind-driven to the degree that even at a depth of 160 feet, we were rocking pretty violently. And even, we ended up going down to 400 feet, um, and even at 400 feet, there was a gentle rocking that you could feel, where even that was, you never felt that. That's how powerful the waves were, that's how powerful the wind and the hurricane was that was driving these, these, these waves. And that's the way the, a doubter is. A doubter's thoughts are all over the place. They move back and forth and up and down with no stability. Just as water cannot stand on its own and is controlled by the wind, so the doubter is controlled by external forces. The doubter will not receive what he, what he asks for. The, the anything in, in verse 7 is limited to what the doubter has, has asked for. God in his mercy still gives the doubter those common benefits he bestows indiscriminately upon all men. Right? It's not like he doesn't, sorry, no air for you, no water for you. No, he's not doing that. But he's not going to get the wisdom that, that he's asked for. In, James, or in verse 8, James describes the doubter as double-minded. And James might have coined this word. Uh, literally, it means two-souled. A doubter acts as though he has two distinct personalities in perpetual conflict with each other. He both wants and doesn't want what he has asked for. He wants both God and the world. He both believes and doesn't believe God. Right? This is the way we are often. Right? You, you remember the man um, when Jesus says he's going to heal his daughter, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Right, and that's the way we are often. We're, we're this double-minded, and that's we have to trust God and have faith. <clears throat> right, he is unwilling to fully lean upon God. This double-mindedness applies to all areas of the doubter's life, so that he is unreliable in all his doings. All right, we'll move to the third point now: the correct attitude toward life by the tried. This is verses nine through eleven. Let the lowly brother boast in his ex- exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It might seem like James is starting a new topic here, but we can connect this section with the earlier ones. So connecting it with the first uh, verses 2 through 4, the believer who has been tested gains the wisdom to have the proper attitude towards material possessions. Uh, Connecting it with 5.8, uh, the double-mindedness that we see in verse 8 can be avoided by the believer who has the wisdom to regard material possessions with a proper perspective, right? A lot of times that's our problem is we have this, this foot in the world. We care about material possessions. We don't trust God as much as we, we should because we're concerned about the material stuff. Um, and, and so we don't trust God. So if we have the right attitude, we can, we can avoid that double-mindedness. We're going to be generous if we don't worry. We trust that God will provide for us. I can be more generous. If I'm worried that I need to hoard all the stuff that I have, then we're not going to be generous. We're not going to be giving. We're going to be double-minded. We're not going to act as, as Christians should. James seems to be saying here that a person's attitude toward material things is a good indicator of his spiritual condition. 
So uh, a sub-point here is the attitude of the lowly brothers. This is verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The verb boast stands emphatically at the beginning of the sentence. One describes it as, not the arrogant boasting of the self-important, but the joyous pride possessed by the person who values what God values. The adjective lowly in this case refers to being poor. I mean, it can in other places refer to being humble, but since since James is contrasting with a rich man, it means poor man. Uh, The wisdom... Wisdom allows the poor man to see his position in Christ. He has eternal life. He's been adopted by God and is a joint heir with Christ. His treasure is in heaven, right? He sees all the values that he has. He sees his eternal perspective, and he knows that he is rich in Christ. So now, sub-point, second sub-point, the attitude of the rich. In verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation. The, the word rich refers to one who does not need to work for a living, and I think that's that's the definition we all have for rich, right? That, a rich person is somebody that doesn't have to work uh, if they don't want to, right? The humiliation of the rich man refers to his attitude, not to a loss of material possessions, as, as some uh, would suggest, or to being ostracized by his former friends, as others suggest, but, but just his attitude. One writes, it would seem here that to be made low is to find something of incomparably greater, wealth, or greater value than his wealth, something that, that by its greatness makes him feel small. So that disillusioned in his old ground of glorifying, he attains a basis for a better glory. As the poor man forgets his poverty, so the rich man forgets his riches, because both have the wisdom given by God to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Knowing how God accounts things. <coughs> Excuse me. Knowing how God accounts things, a rich believer understands that his riches are nothing. His attitudes are like Paul's in, in Philippians 3, 7. And eight, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. The rich believer understands that he and the poor believer are on the same footing with God, as it says in Jeremiah nine twenty three and twenty four. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. All right, the third sub-point. Uh, the reason why the rich brother should have this attitude, verses, end of verse 10 and verse, beginning of verse 11, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. The rich brother must have an attitude of humility because life is brief and uncertain. This is true for the poor man as well, but having plenty, the rich man is more likely to forget it. The poor man won't forget. He knows. He knows his uh, life is, is brief. Uh, comparing life to a flower of the field occurs multiple places throughout the Bible. I'm not going to go into that. Uh, one commentator says, James must have often observed how the field flowers where their beauty and intricacy soon wilted, disintegrated, and passed away. Their beauty offered no security against the adverse elements. The fate of these flowers solemnly declared to James the fact of, his, of the transitoriness of human life. Right? The, the, the hot desert winds, the Sirocco that comes in, in Judea, apparently can wilt uh, the grass and flowers within a few hours when it, when it appears. So it's a very devastating, can be very quick, maybe quicker than we maybe experience it here in Maryland. All right, so the application to the rich. Then uh, the end of verse 11. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So James gives a strong reminder to the rich uh, that permanence is not to be found in the material things of this world. We see with the phrase, in the midst of his pursuits, that the rich man will pass away while he still restless, 
is still restlessly busy with his material pursuits and not anticipating the end is at hand. We think of the parable of the man that tears down his barns and to build new ones and then dies, right? He never actually sees what he is accomplishing there. Um, we are all tempted to live as if this world is all there is, a rich man even more so. All right, point four, the result of enduring trials. This is verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Right, the first point, the blessedness of endurance. He says in the beginning, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Note that it does not say, blessed is the man who escapes trial. It's who remains steadfast under trial. Blessedness in the New Testament refers to a religious joy based on our salvation. The blessed are the recipients of God's favor. The man who remains steadfast under trial is one who characteristically endures the various trials and refuses to give up. He may fail in a trial here and there, but he always repents and gets back up. Some battles are lost, but the war is won. The noun trial is singular here, so James is now pointing to trial as a characteristic feature of human experience or the Christian life. So the trial is a trial of our whole life. Remaining faithful to the end of life is a sign of genuine faith. That's what James is getting at here. So the second point, then, the reward of endurance. He says, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The adjective, the adjective stood the test was used of testing of coins and metal to establish their genuineness. The one who was found to have genuine faith receives the reward. Uh, we see this in the passage I read at the beginning, 1 Peter 1, 5-6, or actually 6-7. And this you rejoice, though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This reward is still in the future, right? He says, will receive, not have received, will receive. This reward, the crown of life, is eternal life. Right? We see in Revelation 2, 10 and 11, uh, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So we see the same thing this crown of life says. And obviously Jesus is referring to eternal life. James does not say that the, that the one who endures earns eternal life. No, Calvin says that by enduring we are made fit to wear the crown which God has already appointed for us. Right? So we don't earn it by that. We, we are made fit to wear it. So in conclusion, have a joyous attitude amidst your trials, knowing that God is using them for his glory and your good. Be steadfast. Don't give up. If you fail, get back up and keep plodding along. That's the Christian life. We, we, we fail, we repent, we get back up, and we start walking again. Uh, don't, don't stay down. Keep getting up. Ask God for wisdom. Wisdom to trust Him. Wisdom to have the proper view of material things. Don't be double-minded. Trust God. God does love you, and He not only can uh, give you wisdom and can help you, He will help you. It, nobody else is more willing to help you than God is. Nobody else is more on your side than God is. Um, if it's a good gift, God will give it to you. If he doesn't give it to you, it's not a good gift. Look to the reward that is awaiting you. God has promised us eternal life, and nothing can compare to that. Look forward to that and remain faithful. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we just thank you for your, uh, your many blessings, Lord. We just thank you that you love us. We are amazed that you would love us. You have no reason to love us, but yet you have done that. And we do praise you for that. We just thank you for giving us eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we just thank you for 
opening our minds and helping us to see the truth of your word, to see that it is your word, and to see our, our, our wretched state, recognize that we are sinners in need of salvation, and by your grace you have given us faith that we might put our trust in Christ Jesus for eternal life, and we do just praise you and thank you for that. We do pray that you'd help us not to be double-minded, help us to trust you in all things and believe. Help us, Lord, not to, to give up, but to be steadfast under trials, Lord, not complaining and being bitter, Lord, but but recognizing and remembering that, that you use them for your glory and for our good and that we would just trust you, not knowing uh, what the end will be, but knowing that, that you will use them for, for our good and that we would trust you in them. We just pray that you'd help us, help us to be faithful to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.